Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I am your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Savannah Siverston to the podcast. Savannah started at EBS as a behavior technician three years ago and has since gone through a full master's program to become board certified as a behavior analyst. And congrats on that, Savannah. But as a professional working in the field of autism and being a neurodiverse herself, she provides a new perspective. And I'd say healthy challenge for everybody else around us to really understand what it is we're doing and who we're caring for. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled to learn more. I'm thrilled to have this conversation. So thanks for joining us, Savannah. Thanks for the invite. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. And, and you have such an interesting story. It's a lot of times what people know about autism is what they read or what they see on TV or what the media is portraying. Um, but as an autistic is that you kind of bring together the whole perspective of, you know, this is, this is not something that's going to keep me from doing anything I want to do in my life. It's just, I might, I might live an experience slightly different than somebody else. And that slightly different could be better at times. It could be <laughs> more challenging at times. It just, it is a different experience, but can you just give a little bit of a background for us? Just, I guess, starting with, your experience as, as a child and your experience growing up and when you um, received the, the diagnosis of autism or be, became aware that you were, that you are autistic? Well, I always kind of figured that I was different growing up because I just interacted different with other kids and kids weren't always particularly nice to me about the way I said things, things that I did. It was apparently weird, whatever. Um, but I thought that that was just like a normal part of growing up. I just kind of like brushed it off. And mm -hmm. sometimes I didn't realize until later, like, wait, maybe they weren't joking. Maybe they really do think I'm weird or whatever. But then I became more aware of it as I started working with other autistics. Um, at my last job, I was a para at a school and working with a few autistic kids and like really understood them. But again, I still didn't really know why. Like I thought that how they interacted with the world, it just made sense to me. And then when I started ABS, there were a few um, consultants that I worked with and stuff that would like gently make comments about like different things that I was doing that the clients were also doing. <laughs> and then I was like, hmm, that feels like a little bit too much of a coincidence that they're all saying this. And so then I started researching like what autism looks like in girls because it is frequently different and mm -hmm. isn't researched as often. Um, and so I started kind of piecing all of these aspects of who I was like as a kid. Like I always wore like boy clothes quote unquote, as a kid, because they were more comfortable yeah. because I have a lot of sensory sensitivities, but because I didn't have the language to, like, I didn't understand sensory. I was just like, well, these clothes are comfortable. 
those ones are covered in sparkles and they're scratchy and I don't like them because it was early 2000s. Everything was sparkly. <laughs> um, <laughs> we all lived that experience. Though. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so like, I just didn't care about the gender norms and whatever as a kid, which is actually really common in autistic girls because like everything that is kind of like pushed on girls is a social construct and yeah. it doesn't make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, so I've known and like kind of like accepted it like two ish years ago. Okay. And then in like my own like mental health therapy, my therapist recommended getting like officially tested and she knew someone that specialized in diagnosing females. And mm-hmm. so the, I lucked out as far as like actually getting the diagnosis. It was pretty easy. I just made a list of all of the things that I saw in myself throughout my life and yeah. I wrote it all down. And that alone was a sign to the person that diagnosed me. She's like, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, as I had eight pages of notes of why I fit the criteria. And the benefit of being in a, in a field and being exposed to so much yeah. to be able to kind of self-evaluate at time, I think it's, it's, it's interesting how that happens. Yeah, I was like, oh, this client does this and I do that too. And that one does this and I do that too. <laughs> no. And so, I mean, it, do you mind just kind of giving an example? Because we, we all lived the experience of, I mean, I'll put it into junior high because that's where my daughter is right now, where nobody feels comfortable in their own skin everybody's social construct is slightly different and their awareness or even understanding of what others are doing really differs at that age. Mm -hmm. Um, As, as a, as an autistic during that time period, can you give me an example of where it was even, even harder to be able to understand that social dynamic or, I mean, I feel like that's when it became more obvious that, I was different because like in elementary school, like all kids are a little clueless. And so like my being clueless was, (laughs) I fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, Then in middle school, like I feel like the friends that I had at the time started caring about different things than I cared about. I still cared about the things that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And they started feeling like they needed to fit in. And I was like, well, what does that even mean? Like, why would you want to be like these people? They're annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like the the drama of like, these people are fighting and like, these people are upset about this like social thing that I didn't like care. I didn't like pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of kept doing my own thing, but started to notice that like, what I was interested in and what everybody else was interested in was very different, but I assumed that it was because I was raised different. Like my parents aren't from Utah and I was like, maybe that plays a role into it. Mm -hmm. I fit in with like my immediate family. Mm -hmm. Like I grew with them just fine. And so I was like, well, maybe, maybe it's them. Like (laughs) maybe they're the weird ones or like they're, concerned about things that don't matter. And I mean, I stick to that. Middle schoolers care about things that don't matter. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, it matters to them and that matters, but like in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But I don't know, like that's where 
I, I think that my social differences started to be more clear because I didn't pick up on, like, I think there were times that I felt like people, people were being mean, but they were joking, but I didn't pick up on the fact that it was a joke. And that's gotta, that's gotta be tough. Not, I mean, it's, it's the not knowing the mm-hmm. not being able to quite figure that out. And I mean, during middle school, you also, I mean, you have that, that time period. And I'm, I'm just going to keep it in that realm because it sounds like that's probably one of the hardest developmentally social time it's periods. a rough time. <laughs> all of that going on. You also have kind of the, it's uh, the, the relationships that where you were playing and, and physical and maybe rough housing as an elementary school is that middle school, it's, it's a different interpersonal connection that's starting to come. And I mean, it's, it's understanding all those dynamics. And then I would imagine with sensory challenges as well, it's like, it's just everything just becomes a little bit harder, which, I mean, just looking at your path, it's, I mean, you became a a helper in your career long-term. And I wonder um, how much of that experience of learning the social dynamic created your interest in therapy and ABA and kind of going the path of helping children? I think knowing that there are tools that other kids have that can be taught that I didn't have and like learned later than was necessary. I mean, my parents, I got lucky because my parents, my dad's a teacher and my mom has a dyslexic brother that I kind of wonder about sometimes, but I don't know him well enough <laughs> to like mm-hmm. say whether or not, but there's a family history of neurodivergence. And so I got a lot of help from them, but I, I have other family and friends and stuff that weren't getting the help that they needed. And knowing that there were tools to help them, but they weren't getting them was really frustrating for me. And so I wanted to do something about that. I mean, I used to think that I wanted to be like a social worker, but I decided that the emotional weight of that job would be too much because I'm extremely empathetic. And so it would have been too much for me. Um, but like, I've always wanted to like make other people's lives easier because I know how hard it can be and that it doesn't, I mean, life is always going to be hard, but it doesn't have to be nearly as hard as those middle school years were hard because that's when I really noticed. I mean, yeah, like what you were saying, like friends stop wanting to like rough house and like that kind of play. And I stopped doing sports and stuff. And so my sensory needs were no longer being met in the same ways and so mm-hmm. everything just got harder because all of the tools that I had been using that I didn't know were tools I didn't have them anymore but I didn't know I didn't have them so I didn't know why everything was harder and just wanting to help others not have that challenge I guess is mm-hmm. kind of got me here and you used, you used the, the word tool several times. And I think that you and I probably see um, kind of the modern ABA or what ABA should be now kind of in the same ballpark where it's about empowering. It's giving somebody the tools to be able to achieve whatever it is that they want to be able to do, to be able to engage in any walk of life that they would want or see fit for them or desire to be a part of without 
any artificial barriers. And a lot of mm. times that's building the skills. Um, did you have any of that, of, of, of that support or do you recognize kind of any opportunities that are out there for that social development now that needs to be in place? Are we missing anything on that? I feel like kind of where I feel like a ABA in general kind of misses the mark is that we kind of have this idea that autistic kids don't have any social skills. We're like starting from ground zero and like we need to teach them how to interact with humans. But frequently what it actually is, is that like autistic kids have different social skills. So like if you get a couple of autistics together, it's awesome, first of all. And the, there is a lot of socialization, but it doesn't always look like neurotypical kids playing. And as you get older too, it's a lot like people talk about, um, there's someone on TikTok that will talk about like rules she learned from watching neurotypicals. And one of them is that conversations need to be linear, but like with autistics and I think it's common with ADHD too, where our conversations aren't linear. And so we're kind of, we kind of jump around because like you said something that reminded me of this and everybody in the conversation that's neurodiverse is staying like they're caught up. Everyone knows what's happening, but neurotypicals look at that and they're like, Whoa, you guys can't finish a conversation. But that's not really our goal. Our goal isn't to finish a conversation. We're just talking to each other about things that we like or things that we're thinking about and whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I think, and which is why I like doing like pre COVID play dates with clients, because what we would do, at least in the ones that I was involved in is it was a lot of just like getting the kids to get to know each other and interact in the way that worked for them. It's, it's interesting to me because we've been doing podcasts and bring people on. And one of the, uh, one of the podcasts we did was on a um, drama troupe. It's kind of teaching acting kind of skills, but it's improv. And oh, cool. that same experience that you just described was exactly what was being described as what was happening in improv. It's like all these wonderful ideas. And you got these kids in the room and they created some really cool experiences. Um, but I, I would imagine as a behavior analyst now is that you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd be looking at all these strengths in communication, all these strengths in socialization that a child would have and not taking away those strengths, not taking mm-hmm. away anything that they have, but building upon it and giving them more chance to be able to explore or to be able to follow the, the conversation when they're talking with a, a non-autistic. It's like, okay, how do I deal with that person? It's, I still haven't figured that person. out. So. <laughs> kind of like, okay, so how do I navigate that conversation so that you don't have to limit your environment? So as an autistic, mm-hmm. you have the, not, uh, the, the, I guess, neurotypical group out there and that you're not limiting yourself to just being able to engage with the the neurodiverse group. And it's like, how can I open up my whole world? So as much as the neurodiverse community is doing that, the neurotypical community should be doing the same thing as saying, how do I understand an autistic? 
And I'd like to phrase that with the kids that understand it. Like, just so you know, like some kids might be confused when you're doing this. So when you're talking with them and they are showing these signs of confusion, like divert back to these methods or whatever to like help kind of build a bridge a little bit between the two worlds, because there are, there are a lot of similarities and there are also sometimes it's just like the direction that you get to that similarity is sometimes just a little different, but you can frequently help kids kind of find that like, okay, cool. If I just like ask them two questions or whatever about the thing that they said, then I can start talking about Minecraft or whatever. And they won't be mad that I brought up Minecraft. Um, One thing that like I frequently find with like the social skills that it's something that I think, I mean, I think we're moving in the right direction, hopefully. Um, But that I frequently find is a struggle in the general ABA world is this idea of the eye contact thing. Like, I think it's something that like neurotypicals look at those programs and are like, well, it's not a big deal. Like just look at their eyes. Mm Mm-hmm however many seconds, like, I don't know, I Googled it once, like three or five seconds or something. Um, On the end of someone who doesn't make eye contact, there, I mean, there's multiple reasons that they might not be making eye contact. And one is with some people, it's painful. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some people that when I try to make eye contact, my eyes actually burn. Yeah. And sometimes it's just awkward and uncomfortable and feels kind of like intrusive. Mm -hmm. And so then to especially when it's like coming from this therapist that's coming into your house, they're, they're virtually a stranger, you know, and they're like, look, look at my eyes. Remember to look at me. And it's like, which is super, well, super personal, that particular yeah, skill like, set. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, well, who are you to tell me where I should be looking? <laughs> like, and like a lot of the time, even if it's not like painful, a lot of time what happens is, you spend so much time like, okay, I have to look at them. Oh, and now I need to look away and uh, I'm looking way too long. Now I need to look back and what are my hands doing? And am I facing the right way? And Oh crap. They just asked me a question. I have no idea what they're talking about. And so it kind of removes the ability to have that conversation with the other person. And it, it ends up making you look more socially inept because yeah you're trying so hard to mask and like look like they're looking because that's what you were taught in ABA. I mean, that was a, like a big thing yeah. 10 years ago, you know? And so now they're all. What you were describing there is, I mean, the idea of the science of, okay, I'm going to teach somebody to do eye contact without getting the perspective of, you know, what is the feedback that the other person is receiving while going through that? I think in in good ABA is that they've learned over time. There's so many different ways to keep somebody's attention. You don't mm-hmm. need to be staring at somebody because sometimes it actually gets more awkward if somebody <laughs> feels uncomfortable with eye contact to force them through that behavior. Would you say that um, as a behavior analyst who's, who's also uh, autistic is that you have the opportunity to be able to coach and give that experience. Do you give that feedback? Do you have a way to be able to communicate? Is there a community out there of behavior analysts to be able to kind of work through this? I mean, there are groups that are working towards like more 
ABA reform and those kinds of things. And they happen in those kinds of conversations. And I have not had parents even ask me to work on eye contact in, I mean, I've only been acting in BCBA for like four months, but Mm -hmm. in that time I haven't had parents ask me to work on eye contact. Um, But I've seen programs like when I first took over cases that had like active listening and like those kinds of things. And I changed those programs because, and explained to the staff why I was changing it, how to notice if they're listening. Because for some like kids that I've worked with, it's a lot of like, sometimes it's as simple as a, like I would say a kid's name and like his head would like slightly tilt while he was like playing his game or whatever. And I knew that I had his attention. Um, but if you like tried to like get him to look at you, he thought he was in trouble because the only time his parents made him look at them was when he was in trouble. And so like, that was a better way to like say his name and then he'd be like, Oh yeah. And then some, I mean, sometimes he would look forcing it just made it worse. And so like, I've noticed that I have to kind of slowly bring up the idea to some people because they haven't had exposure to the autistic community and how our listening sometimes looks different. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I like, think there are a lot of neurotypicals too that would prefer to not make eye contact, but they just do because I don't know, social rules or something. <laughs> but it, it, it really sounds like to me that you've taken the idea of being able to individualize an assessment and look at every child for what they have within their skill repertoire, how they engage and if there are true barriers, and then you figured out, okay, so if this is how they're engaging right now, is it interfering? No. Is it causing problems? No. Well, how do I still get to build skills that I need to build that isn't going to get me stuck on these arbitrary decisions? Mm-hmm. So let the child be the child. Let me build the relevant skills. So in that context, I mean, if, if you were to tell me what good ABA is right now, I mean, what is that from your perspective? I mean, the way it looks, like a typical session would probably be like play-based, mostly child-led. I mean, obviously you have to run programs, you have to run, but like letting them be involved in the decision of like when it happens in the session, like making a schedule and okay, we need to work on your address. When do you want to work on it? Do you want to do it before your snack or after your snack, whatever? Um, and a lot of like teaching about teaching the kids about consent in the aspect of teaching them to say no when they aren't comfortable with something and reinforcing them when they do say no. And like, obviously there are some things that like, you just have to do it. You have to brush your teeth or your teeth will fall out, (laughs) but you can decide if you like you can present it like, do you want to brush your teeth now or in two minutes? And mm-hmm. like now they have a choice in their own personal care. Yeah. And there are some things that it's like, you don't want to write your name today. Cool. Let's draw shapes instead or whatever it is. Like focusing on what's actually important to the client, both their parents and the kid, if they're able to tell you. And I mean, I think that sometimes we forget that all behavior is communication. And so if they're 
always tantruming when you present a certain activity. They clearly don't like it. Maybe approach it a different way Mm. uh, because that's, they're communicating to you that they don't like what's happening. Mm -hmm. And it might, it might be simply like they don't like coloring or whatever it is, or it might be, they don't like the hand over hand, which is something that a way I've heard that people I've not tried it because I don't have any kids that I've done hand over hand with, but instead of doing hand over hand, doing hand under hand. So like their hand is on top of yours while you're performing the skill and they're still getting that full physical model basically, but they're able to remove their consent at any time. And it really sounds like, I mean, just like, Every single thing that you're highlighting when you're going through the process really emphasizes is that you're engaging the child. It's mm-hmm. it is focusing on what's going to make the child more empowered, give them more uh, ability to make their own choice, be self-determined um, and following their lead and creating environments that they want to be a part of, that the skill that you're teaching has use and is able to be done when you leave the room and, and that they're going to want to continue to do it when you leave the room. And um, I think the benefit of, of, of a good ABA program, because there are, I mean, bad, bad medicine is bad medicine, bad EBA, bad EBA, and it's not going to help people. But if you're doing it correctly, like it sounds like you're doing, you're analyzing each of those pieces. And if a child doesn't want, like you were describing hand over hand, where they're moving, you're moving them around, you're physically managing the child, and that's adversive, mm-hmm. the is going to find another way to teach that skill and not force them through that process and find ways to motivate them to want to be a part of that environment. And would you say that's the biggest kind of pushback is that people have seen bad ABA before? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they, they kind of sit on that, not realizing that, you know, a, a good clinician is really going to analyze it the way you described and not the way that would create the negative animosity. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of the other criticisms that I've heard about ABA, because I mean, obviously, I didn't have a diagnosis, I didn't go through ABA, so I can't speak from personal experience on it. But um I, I think that it still happens to some degree in certain, like around the country. I hear people tell stories about their, like in some of these reform groups that I'm in, they'll talk about their client and like the program that they're being told to run and why, like, is this okay to be doing? This doesn't feel right. But a lot of the concerns are also related to, um, like kind of the normalizing be like skills that we teach of um, that are basically teaching kids to mask, like not flat. Like, I mean, I've not seen this particular thing at EBS, but like, like suppressing stems and like to fit in and like um, doing that kind of thing where it's because masking can cause a lot of mental health issues because you're kind of like creating this for people to like you, you can't act like yourself. And so like to make other people more comfortable, your, your job is to make other people more comfortable. So keep your hands still. It causes a lot of like 
even if that's not the intent of the clinician to like make them like, cause I've heard people say, Oh, well they might get bullied if they're flapping their hands. And it's like, well, maybe we should be as a community be working more on having more autistic kids in people's environments. And so it's normalized. We should be normalizing stimming, not continuing the stigma of stimming. And now these kids are being made fun of, or we're afraid they're going to be made fun of. So we're going to make them stop doing it Mm -hmm. when you're just creating, like you're just giving this kids shame in who they are when I mean, for one, stimming is a coping skill for a lot of kids. And now we're taking their coping skill and then we're mad that they're tantruming. I mean, we're not mad, but like now we're trying to get them to stop crying, but now, but don't flap your hands. And it's like, well, they were trying to cope. (laughs) It's It's almost like looking at, you know, is this behavior something that's in place that's really interfering? It's really keeping them from being a part of everything they're hoping to be a part of and giving them the chance to learn and develop or are we doing something just because we think it looks weird? And if it is on the latter side and somebody has something that just maybe draws attention in a public setting, do we really need to change that? And then, and the answer is probably not unless it's hurting them <laughs> is mm-hmm. that those are behaviors that are just part of the person. If it's interfering with them being able to do other things that they really want to be a part of. That's a different scenario, I'd imagine. And that's yeah. the evaluation behavior analysts really need to take that perspective is how is this behavior impacting the child, not how does this impact the appearance of the child mm-hmm. in the community. And I think that those are those it's a good perspective. And I think it's something that the more you bring up, um, the more people share that perspective. We're able to really take the child-centered approach and really look at what is it that is a goal? Is it a goal to take away somebody's ability to hand flap to cope? No. If they were punching people to cope, well, yeah, I probably <laughs> need to change that behavior. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's a different sort of perspective. And I think it's something we all need to be conscientious about. And it's, it's the acceptance, the inclusion piece. What does inclusion mean to you? How should we as a society be more inclusive? I think listening to everybody's voice is one thing that, and I think it goes in this situation, it goes both ways, both with like ABA practitioners listening to the autistic community. And I mean, I think that's probably the first step and then eventually trying to get the autistic community to listen to what we're trying to say, because like what I've, seen is there's a lot of autistic adults will like express their experiences with ABA and then all these clinicians will put in the comments oh it's not like that anymore it's not like that anymore which in a lot of ways is true but you're not listening to what they're saying and seeing how it might apply to your situation and so I think listening to all voices which would include having like trying to get them more involved in every situation like it's kind of that nothing about us without us kind of situation um of like we want to help you guys how do you guys want help and kind of like work together to 
come to an understanding where everybody's needs are being met and everyone feels like they're being heard. And I mean, it's, I mean, that's perfect world, you know, like (laughs) you can't like the odds of us creating a world where everybody listens to everybody is highly unlikely, but each step gets closer to that. And I mean, I think each open ear, each time we stop to, to listen, each time we take a perspective that's not ours is that we apply that little bit. And I think that's why ABA has changed over the years to become more natural in the approach, far more focused on being able to empower children versus what I think historically was, you know, we're gonna change A behavior. No, we're gonna Mm -hmm. empower a child to have more options, to be able to work through challenging situations, to open doors to career paths or to friendships that maybe they were closed because they didn't have the skill to get there. And now we're just mm-hmm. giving them that tool, like you had mentioned earlier. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a very important practice that we need to do. And it's not just uh, with neurodiverse population. It's all populations of the world. Yeah. <laughs> we need to be but it's just, it's stopping and reevaluating over time. And it's these kind of conversations that I think allow us to get there that allow us the opportunity to say, hey, let's take a look at this program, Icon. Let's take a look at stimming. Let's take a look at all these little things and make sure when we choose to do a program, we know why, we know how it's affecting, and we know that it is really going to help that individual. Just kind of as a parting thought, um, whether it's to families, whether it's to other autistics, or whether it's to clinicians that you want to kind of share as far as words of wisdom for us all. I don't know if I have any wisdom. Ah, Uh, (laughs) I doubt that. (laughs) um, I don't know. Just I think, especially like as a like from the clinician side, something that I try to do myself. Um, and I think that parents could benefit from this too, of put yourself in the kid's shoes. Would you be okay with someone doing this to you? And if you wouldn't be, maybe find a different approach. If you don't think that, I mean, especially like parents know their kids and if like and clinicians know the kids too pretty well, but will never know them as well as their parents do. And so if you are noticing signs of distress or they're uncomfortable or they are maybe going along with it, but they aren't comfortable or you feel kind of off about something that's happening, say something. Because a lot of the time um, we think we're doing what's best based on the knowledge that we have but we might not know the whole situation. We've maybe not, we might be misinterpreting this behavior that we're seeing or that kind of thing. So really just listen to kids, I guess, is maybe my parting words. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, Savannah, I I thank you again for coming on to the podcast today, because I think that a, it, it's always wonderful to hear an experience and a perspective, but B it's educative. And hopefully is that just by having a voice through this is that you've made people stop and think, which is the first step to kind of reevaluating, you know, when I'm making these decisions clinically um, within my, within my program is that to do 
good ABA, I need to listen. I need to be aware of all the individual components of my child. And I need to evaluate how to make this purposeful for them. So I appreciate your time today. And, and once again, thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, you're welcome. Everything that we're doing, we just have to take a second to, to make sure that it's through the lens of, are we doing good? Are we helping? And I think what Savannah really highlighted is that a, a good ABA program for a child with autism is going to build all those skills. We just have to be creative in the way that we're delivering it so that we're giving them a chance to really enjoy the experience, that we're giving them the chance to be able to put it into natural context, and we're giving them this, that opportunity to still be an individual. These conversations need to continue. It's not going to be one day that all of a sudden all ABA practices are doing things great. But good ABA is still making such a wonderful difference out there. And the way that Savannah defines it is the way that we should all be looking at that. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS. ABS is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids, that's plural, dot com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.